As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Welcome back as we continue to talk about MotoGP, this time about my favourite period of MotoGP. Is that even better than the current era? Well, they're all good eras, but 990s was quite something for MotoGP. It was the first five years, 2002 to 2006 inclusive. Now, MotoGP was announced at the 2000 Japanese Grand Prix, which took place at Suzuka. I remember I was in the commentary box. It was a fantastic view over the start-finish line, and the door was pulled open, and somebody thrust this FIM press release into our hands, and I knew there and then that it would bring a new, refreshing look to Grand Prix motorcycle racing. The new name, MotoGP, away from 500cc Grand Prix. A lot of the old school, I can remember, scoffing at that new name. But actually, looking back on it, it was utterly genius. A name that carried itself across so many language barriers. So, the first MotoGP race was at Suzuka in 2002. I went down to the inside of the first corner. I am tingling as I say this. Every time I talk about it, I'm tingling. I went down to the inside of the first corner, just at the end of pit lane, and it was all a bit overgrown and very messy. And all these bikes came out, and I just stood there going, this is history. And of course, looking back on it, it absolutely was. Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki, and Aprilia all turned up with these new fire-breathing bikes. Tom Jojic was there that day as well, and he joins me once more. Tom was with Team Roberts, and while I was upstairs in the commentary booth overlooking that start-finish line, Tom was downstairs in pit lane. Tom, what's your abiding memory of that first weekend of MotoGP? Yeah, thanks for having me again, Toby. Yeah, it was um, one of those moments in time where you think to yourself, this will never happen again. This is phenomenal. And you had four strokes versus two strokes. So it was one of those chaotic things where you thought, oh, we still had a chance. And really, you didn't have a chance, you know, um, especially when those monsters got going. And it was just the electricity of it. And what an awesome place to start it in Suzuka, right? Like what an amazing racetrack. And there you were standing 
you know, in the for us in the pit lane on the pit stand, looking at these things take off off the line and the power, the launch of a four stroke versus a scream of a two stroke. Well, there was no there was no chance for two strokes. It was the beginning of the end, wasn't it? But the the beginning of something very good in MotoGP. And I believe I agree with you, Toby. For me, 2002 and 2006 was the best. Today is great, and I love it. A little bit too electronic for me, and coming from an electronic background, you know, I, I just, I like the purity of riders of that caliber. They're so good having to control monsters, and they did. And um, they had the drive they ever, they needed to just pick it up and drive off the corner. And all of a sudden, you had this amazing racing that we hadn't had for a while. Why did they go 990? What was the thought process? Good question. So 990 didn't exist in the production world and MotoGP 500s before that were pure prototypes and they had to stay as pure prototypes. What the organizers were clever at and looking at, um, at that time, Superbike was becoming extremely popular and Superbikes were becoming much more tuned production road bikes and coming close in lap time to 500s. So all the manufacturers realized, well, to be honest, 500s are fantastic, but what can we do with a 500? Emission controls around the planet were stopping any 500 arriving at a, at a, you know, at a sales to be sold to pub, general public. So they thought, let's do something four-stroke that doesn't exist. Keep it pure prototype. 990 didn't exist. It was 1,000 cc. Most nine, most thousands were 998s or 999 ccs. So thereby making it a 990, everybody had to make a, a prototype engine and they didn't want anybody bringing a production let's say superbike into MotoGP so that was written into the rules in a kind of quiet kind of way right you you're, you're not allowed to bring production stuff here so that was the whole reason behind it and it was a mastermind it was clever because what's 10 cc's right Toby when you're talking about the the power of these beasts right like where we started and where they are now the power is ridiculous right yeah, yeah. What kind of power were they kicking out in those those first uh, first first couple of races? First few years. I mean, I can recall the you know trying to get two hundred out of our KR bike. I can remember thinking the Hondas and Ducatis were two twenty two forty out of the box. Yeah, and that type of number is you know it's not scoffed at today. You put that you can't put that into a production road bike, right? So two hundred. Let's call it two forty for sure. And and those guys were able to achieve that. Like we're talking, this is pre-pneumatic valve days, right? We're talking about spring valve engines for Hondas and Yamahas, uh, Ducati with the Desmo. So they had their own version of, you know, lifting the valve and closing the valve. But we don't have pneumatics here. So this is like quite high output for a liter, 1,000 cc's. And it's, um, you know, it needed to be more, it needed to be, a lot more than the 500 to make sure the 500 couldn't really compete sure 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 um honda came out with the with the v5 it was called the rc 211 v rc because honda always had their race bikes as rc 21 was for the 21st century and then the second digit one was for first place i mean i mean how japanese was that it was a fantastic yeah. piece of engineering it made its debut uh, on track at the suzuka eight hours the year before which was therefore august 2001 
uh, I believe off the top of my head, Mick wrote it, or maybe even Freddie as well. I can't remember now. Maybe he wrote it. Another. Definitely Mick. Mick wrote it, it and Mick. it was in the yeah. kind of red colours. And then Yamaha mm. didn't have a 990. They had a 942cc capacity for the first couple of races, for the first few races. Uh, there was a big chat about, oh, well, the tyres will just explode and, and it will all mm. go to pot and no one will last a race and there'll just be too much power it was everything that no engineer ever says we will have too much power um yeah sure the electronics were a bit rudimentary uh yamaha was still on carburetors yeah. they only went to injection in 03 uh michelin were worried about the tires but in the end that was all kind of chat like when apollo 11 went to the moon they didn't know upon landing whether or not the surface was 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 hard or soft and whether or not the lunar landing module would disappear into a into a lake of dust nobody kind of knew but actually during testing the tires were fine they they were definitely being worked hard <laughs> that that's for sure uh, I don't, yes <laughs> but i mean you got to remember like i understand why yamaha did 942 they so honda had a concept right like honda rc211v shows up with a V5. I mean, these guys, they had a plan. This wasn't like, okay, I know, we're going MotoGP. Okay, we got six months, let's put something together. You know, when the rules came out and they and they did the weight limits, right? And the four and five cylinder weight limit was the same weight. Somebody was clever who, who let's say, said to them, well, nobody's going to build a five cylinder, so let's make four and five the same. But if you go six cylinders... You're going to have to add 10 kilograms. So, you know, the, let's talk to, let's say why you would want a five cylinder over a four cylinder, Toby. Or a th- well, hang on, a minute, hang on a minute. So, the weight limit for a four and a five was 145 kilos. Yeah. And it was an extra 10, as you say, for yes. six cylinders at 155. Exactly. Now, few people thought about it, but no. Uh, but there was 10 kilos less if you went for a triple, which is what Aprilia did. And we'll come back yeah, to them in a minute. Exactly. So, you know, as a triple, 135. As a four five one four five, And like you say, as a six, 155. So there's a huge advantage to go to five cylinders. Because if you make the piston smaller, you could rev it higher, right? And their target wasn't higher revs, but their target was torque and drivability so you with more cylinders you can make more power because you can share the load so ultimately a v10 engine is going to have more power than a v8 and a you know a eight cylinder engine is going to have more power than a six and a six is going to have so uh eight's going to have more than a six and six is going to have more than a four so you can just trickle down that technology so honda come up with this v5 and it's not even a 90 degree v5 people are looking at it going what are they doing like what the heck and it's not just a we stuffed a v5 into a 500 nsr they show up with a complete concept like here's a completely different motorcycle that looks nothing like the nsr it's got this engine that's super narrow because if you make it and this is the clever thing one of the clever it's such a clever concept whoever had that idea you've got to tip your hat off to them so if you make it is the greatest motorcycle that ever raced any racetrack in the universe ever i think so because if you think back like you want it narrow narrow for multiple reasons one of them is because the riders you know in the air you don't want the rider in the air you want it to be part of the package for aerodynamic reasons so if you have a v4 you can make it quite narrow but if you have a v5 you can put the front three cylinders as the three and the back two is the two you have five 
you can make that that back two cylinder narrower because they've still got to be 990 cc's between five cylinders instead of between four thereby resulting in the piston being smaller which allows them to narrow it up so it was a at the back yeah it's a complete so they had different cylinder sizes at the back no basically they had two at the back and three at the front all three cylinders are the same size but the back of the engine is narrower than the front of the engine okay right around the head right so and the reason for that is that's where the rider's knees are so if you narrow that area up you can tuck the rider in better so overall it's a packaging i mean they did a such a clever job on the packaging and it's not just that like we could go into the details of the engine which is I think the most amazing thing that nobody really understood until the very end of 990s when Honda opened up their engine is the fact that they didn't have a balance shaft in this engine. And the reason they didn't need a balance shaft wasn't because they didn't need one. Sorry, the reason they didn't have it isn't, isn't because they didn't, didn't need one. They did need one, but they put the fifth cylinder, they put the crank pin in a position to become the balance shaft. So what would usually take power away from your engine because you need a balance shaft? That's why Ducatis run a 90 degree V4. It's naturally balanced. They do not require a balance shaft. Honda V5, 75.5 degree V angle is naturally balanced with the pin at 104.5 degrees, which is what they had. Thereby, the fifth cylinder is actually your balance shaft. How clever is that? Genius. Nobody ever thought of that. And when you watch, there's an, I think there's an amazing video on YouTube somewhere that it's the Japanese man who was in charge of some of the project talking about why they made the V5 because no one ever had. And I think that's what I like about MotoGP. Oh, didn't he say something like, yes, because it was difficult, you know? And nobody had ever <laughs> done it. And, and the thing is, it, it was just such a, I mean, I have some really fond memories because we were able to use that bike, that engine, sorry. We, we had our own bike, but but everybody was like, how good is that? And the ride, every rider wanted to ride a Honda. I mean, it was mm. just phenomenal, right? So, yeah. Mm. And then coming back to the original point, yeah, Yamaha had 942, but that's because they wanted their 990 to be a 500 with a four-stroke engine in it. So to make that fit, they ended up in the very first year having a smaller capacity. They, they Don't worry, it wasn't 942 for long, right? So no. they ended up re making a brand new engine, bringing that engine to the racetrack, later turning it into, into Big Bang or, or let's call it um, uneven firing for a reason. Like we can talk about that maybe a bit later. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so, yeah, there, there was like, what was amazing was all these different ideas coming out and the fact that nobody was the same. Everybody was different. I mean, the Aprilia RS Cube out of Italy was a three-cylinder, so it was only yeah. 135 kilos max weight, uh, minimum weight, as opposed to 145 of the, the fours and the fives. Yeah, 10 kilos, that's a lot. That's that huge. was a three-cylinder made by Cosworth. It was kind of made in a bit of a hurry, the engine, but it had pneumatic valves. Mm. That was space yeah. race stuff coming into two-wheel yep. Grand Prix racing, traction control, ride-by-wire, six injectors. It had 235 horsepower from a triple on the bench. Funnily enough, they didn't run that because it didn't go around corners. Yeah. <laughs> but my godfathers, did it sound good in a straight line? <laughs> it did, yeah. They're a little bit ahead of their time on that one. So, I mean, going pneumatic valve, six injectors, producing that type of power, so narrow power band, much more of an F1 car engine technology, right, Toby? Like instead mm. the, whereas the Japanese Yamaha and Honda, specifically Suzuki and Kawasaki were there then also, they showed up. And 
and really motorcycles are about drivability and connection from the rider's right wrist to the contact patch and if like 500 showed if you didn't have it right you riders get hurt and get spat off and if you didn't control that power it, there was no point in having it because you couldn't put it to the ground so you needed to find drivability and this this race all of a sudden became something of who's got the best ideas who's got the mm -hmm. best layout where where should we how do we improve our package do we believe in what we have what i like the most about MotoGP being living it and i was there for every every one of those years was was how the paddock was electric because everybody's like well who showed up with something new today and something showed up new almost every day didn't it at the yeah. racetrack yeah, yeah it was it was like the, you had yamaha with an inline four you had suzuki with a v4 kawasaki showed up with an inline four ducati with a v4 honda with the v5 i mean honda had what what they had in their back pocket was valentino so when do we start talking about Valentino in this game, right? Because 990s was Valentino Rossi. We can start about talking about him because he won that first race. So he won the last race on a 500, 500 and the first yeah. race on the four-stroke new MotoGP bike. So from Rio 01 to Suzuka yeah. 02, he won. And of course, he ended up by... Uh, over 16 races taking a podium at 15 of them only yeah. a rare failure with his bike at Bruno prevented him from getting a clean sweep of podiums at every single Grand Prix in O2 yeah. he won 11 of 16 races Honda won mm. 14 out of 16 races i mean yeah 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 domination but yeah, it yeah. didn't seem like at least from my point of view as the entertainer up in the commentary box it didn't mm. seem as if it was boring because he was fun now that's not a technical conversation he was fun for the sport and for bringing new people in he was i mean valentino changed the sport in a positive way for fans and for media and for everything sponsors all the rest of it right like you're right those statistics are phenomenal and you know what that stoppage was it was a tire problem so the bike didn't stop the tires didn't last so and and <laughs> that's like a, that. <laughs> yeah yeah a lot of people have and the thing is i i just remember that day thinking hondas don't break and and it wasn't a, it definitely wasn't a honda problem so it was a this is what the sport is and here this guy is prepared to to ride this bike like this and he was unbeatable what was good and I think we have to take our hats off to Honda for this, is they gave that bike to private teams. So, gave. They paid for those packages. But the thing is, Honda won 14 of 16 races. Valentino didn't win every race. What was really good was other riders were able to win on a Honda, right? Anybody could win on a Honda. And, and when he swapped to Yamaha, he won on a Yamaha. So what we have to say about Valentino is, my God, like seriously, 125 world champion, 250 world champion, wins the last 500, wins the first 990 and is unbeatable on a Honda, swaps to a Yamaha and wins his first time on a Yamaha, the race and the championship. Wow. Yeah, yeah in 04, in 04. Yeah. But yeah, it was incredible. Back to 02, just for a minute. I always used to go out on track on a Friday morning and a Saturday morning and I went on a... Let's just go back half a step. There were a lot of people going oh, well, it's not going to be the same. Two strokes are the, are the best. An NSR 500, a YZR 500, they're the best thing ever, and an RGV 500, nothing will ever beat them. And, uh, and I was saying, before we saw them on racetrack, that a MotoGP bike would be it. It would blow everything out the weeds. 
and there were letters in magazines and there was people writing in on email to Julian and I in the commentary box, oh, well, it's going to be rubbish and they're going to be diesels and whatever. And I went out to Donington on the racetrack on the exit of the, the, the corner that led onto the back straight, onto McLean's. Coppice. And, yeah, Coppice. And I stood there and everybody just shook their head. Yeah. Everybody had their jaw on the floor picking up gravel. To yeah, a man yeah. <laughs> and woman, they were yeah, yeah. stood there and they went, holy moly, mm. man alive. Yeah, and I, I kind of smiled and I went, yep, that's what this sport needed. 100%. And you know why that corner? Because it's off camber, right? And dri- you're driving onto that Dunlop Strait at the time. Yeah. And then yeah. it was just like, it reminded me of like, I have this similar memory, Toby, of the last corner at Estoril. So remember, yeah. you could stand on the exit of the last corner yeah. on the inside of the armco, and you could stick your hand out. And if a rider came past, if he stuck his hand out, you'd high five each other. That's how close could. it was terrifying, wasn't it? And I remember mm. standing there. I, I think it might have been winter testing or something. I can't remember. But I remember standing there one day watching them come past going, Jeez, how amazing that is just, I don't even know, I, I want to do a swear here, but the thing is, it was just so phenomenal. And the thing was just like, you could hear the tires screaming underneath all this power and aggression of just like, how are we, how am I going to make a tire last? Is all My thought was, how do I make the tire last? Like with what we have in our back pocket here, like in the garage, you know? Phenomenal. You did make them last. You did. And the good thing is that... In 2002, MotoGP had arrived. Yeah, it was awesome, wasn't it? It, it was just like you couldn't you couldn't have planned it better, and they probably didn't expect it to be that good. They just were trying to make sure that it was it was. They didn't want, let's say, they didn't want the Superbike World Championship to overtake the 500 World or MotoGP World Championship. That's got. I think that's a fair statement. So yeah, great stuff. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Into 2003 for MotoGP, Ducati and Kawasaki arrived. Ducati had a podium at their very first race with Loris Caparossi. He was one of the bravest MotoGP riders that the era saw. Uh, It was a terrible race in other respects because the sport lost Daijira Kato with a terrible accident that happened mid-race. He... uh, he died in hospital a couple of weeks later, before, literally days before the next race, which was in South Africa at Velcom. Seti Banau, his teammate, 
won the race. There was not a dry eye in the house. I've never heard our commentary back, mm. but I can only think that we just were lost for words as well. But it gave emotionally if we can talk about emotion rather than technical for a minute, Tom. Yeah. It gave emotionally Sete Gibanao another strength because he was then the MotoGP rival to Valentino Rossi. They were both on Honda V5s. And as the season progressed, there was a big battle going on. It was great sport. Yeah, amazing. I mean, Sete came from Suzuki the year before, right? So he hopped. Was that his first year? It was his first year on the Honda V5, I think. And... Yeah, that was a sad day in Suzuka. It it was a tarnish on the sport that nobody likes to see, right? So it was, um, it, I remember thinking to myself, what are we doing? And and it was like, because I'd never been involved in that before. Um, and unfortunately, there's been a few after that. But yeah, it, it brought home, you know, the back of the past says motorsport is dangerous, Toby, remember? Yeah. And it's yeah. that's the facts. I mean, th these guys are... Even then, you know, rider and track safety had been improved over the years. But yeah, it was a, it was a thing that we didn't never wanted to see again. But it was also the the thing that started with Seti and, and Valentino was awesome. It was like us, like you said, it gave him it gave him extra fuel, extra fire for the fight, and it was a fantastic championship. Ducati won their sixth MotoGP race. Wow. I don't, I don't remember how how i reacted i was just kind of no. oh well they've won the race but you look back on it now and you go you won your sixth yeah, race yeah. people would pay yeah, a yeah. gazillion dollars for that nowadays 100 percent. never mind that toby the first race they made a podium so then they won their first race six races later so when people have come to me and said what would we what do we need to do for MotoGP?" i've been lucky enough to consult to different companies over the years I just said, well, have a look at Ducati's record book. Yeah, maybe the championships aren't there, like the number that they would like to have. But to walk into the sport and win their first, on their first season, win their sixth Grand Prix and podium the first race, awesome. And like some of the way the rules were written and the fact that it was like a, you couldn't bring production stuff there. You couldn't, you know, race a production bike. The fact that they, Ducati made their first ever V4, you know. That was awesome. Like, here we go. These guys were like, we're going MotoGP. Kawasaki were the same. We're going MotoGP. And, and these guys showed up, and that was exactly what the sport needed. From the stagnation of just having three manufacturers dominate, all of a sudden we had, we had all kinds of stuff going on. The whispers of BMW potentially showing up, you know, that type of stuff. So it was a, it was a fantastic thing to see these red bikes there. Mark Knopfler came to Donington, and... I did an interview with him in the gap between the warm-up and the one-two-five race that we used to broadcast, and I stumbled across it quite some months ago, maybe even years ago. And uh, first of all, I melted at meeting Mark Knopfler. I mean, you know, mega, <laughs> mega hero of Dar Straits. Um, yeah. And um, and he said the Ducati, it's just demented. <laughs> he yeah. said those were his words. The ground shook. The ground it shook when it went was past. Yeah. Like a Saturn yeah, yeah. V rocket taking off. It yeah, hurt yeah. your ears. It was definitely mental. Yeah, it's funny because they they originally started with the noise limit and then they got rid of it, right? So 130. Oh, 
there is a 130 decibel noise limit, give me a break. I mean, it's louder than a rocket ship. Yeah, Yeah. it is loud. (laughs) And the thing that was funny was like, you'd hear a Ducati start at the other end of pit lane and go, there's Ducati. And I mean, the the pit lane shook, you know? And if they ever brought anything new, which they did, firing order, exhaust, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, they're doing something new because how could you miss it? I mean, if you missed it, you were you were definitely, you shouldn't have been there. You know, it was, uh, yeah, what a sound. And it was just like, I mean, imagine what that, I can't imagine what it must have been like to ride. I mean, it must have been terrifying. And those guys were, that thing used to burn riders. Remember, Toby? Yeah. Oh, man, the heat coming off that bike. Well, all of them. I mean, four strokes, like all of a sudden you had this amount of energy that you had to dissipate but yeah it was uh it was amazing yeah good days good days but <clears throat> little did we know throughout the 2003 season that all was not well with valentino rossi and hrc with repsol honda and he signed the deal with yamaha early on in 03 to go to yamaha in 04 uh, he moved to yamaha for that 04 season and he won that first race at Velcom against Max Biaggi. Uh, Valentino was quickest in every single session that weekend. I bumped into Davide Brivio, the then team manager of Yamaha, only a few weeks ago. And he said, Valentino just wanted to win it. He had to win it. He had to do it. He had to, he had to, he had to. And the fairy tale of Valentino Rossi for so many still to this day, was completed that day in South Africa. Um, he beat Biaggi, his arch rival. He beat Honda because Honda had said, ah, oh, Honda does the winning, not the rider. And Valentino said, no, 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 it's me that does the winning, not the bike. Typical rider versus manufacturer argument. It happens to this day. Um, but proof of the pudding was, I think the race was something like 20 seconds quicker than the year before, but the next Yamaha was 36 seconds behind Valentino. Yeah. Um, Jerry Burgess, they came out, and the mechanics, they all came over from Honda to Yamaha, and they said, right, let's stop the adjustability on the bike, let's keep it simple, but it worked. Yeah. History that will never be repeated. No, and that that was definitely the crowning moment of Valentino's career, wasn't it? I mean... He swapped manufacturers. Nobody could could fight for a championship if he weren't on a Honda, and he won the championship. So, and winning that first race, remember, I vivid memories of him kneeling and kissing the front of the bike, remember, on the side of the Armco at the cool down lap. I'll never forget that. that. And being there that day was something special. But you're right. Like no one had won the championship on a Yamaha since Wayne Rainey twelve years before. Wow. Scary stuff, right, Toby? And then mm. Max Biaggi coming from a Yamaha was expecting to beat him on the Honda and he lost a championship to Valentino. Well, that was the end of Max's career. There's no doubt about that. And Yamaha went on to just, they went from strength to strength. And I think maybe the significance of the whole team moving across should be pointed out a little bit. Like Jeremy Burgess. He came out in the press multiple times since he stopped now, also said, I'm not an engineer. I just get the best out of the package that's given me and the rider that I've got. And I think his motto of work is is definitely amazing. And he didn't come there saying, we need to make this bike do this. They came there and I can remember a Yamaha engineer telling me one day when I was in Tech 3 Moto 2, yeah, Yamaha factory mm-hmm. uh, sat- satellite teams, I remember asking the question once. We, I mean, the Moto2 team wasn't Yamaha-based, but we still had dinners in the same hospitality and all the rest of it. 
I asked one day and they said, like when we, when Valentino arrived, we said, look, please don't ask us to change the bike to be a Honda because our bike is a Yamaha. What we need from you is to know what part of the package we need to improve the most. And when they changed the engine firing configuration, that's when they made huge strides, right? It became a much easier bike to ride. And they did that during the winter of him, his first test to him winning the championship, right? What an amazing accomplishment by those people back in Japan, yeah? So instead of it being a screamer, it was a big bang. Just try and explain what that means. Yeah, that's a good point, Toby. It's a really hard one to visualize, isn't it? So if you think, hmm. you know, these bikes have got four cylinders and the pistons are going up and down. And so the four stroke fires every second one. So you got 720 degrees of rotation for all of them to finish the job and start the job again, right? So a screamer fires each cylinder and an even spacing. What that does, yeah, so let's just call it like every, let, let's keep it simple. Let's let's call it one circle, yeah? So it fires every 90 degrees, even though it's- so 12 o'clock, three o'clock, six o'clock, yeah, nine o'clock. Exactly. It's not that because it's two circle revolutions, but that's yeah. like for the concept, this'll, this'll make it yeah. clear. So what they, what they realized that they needed to do was give the tire a chance to recover Basically, if you hit the tire with pulses every 90 degrees and you start a spin, you can't recover. The key to not starting to spin is to not start the spin. Like once you've started it, you've got to go too slow to re regain the grip. So they Honda learned that lesson a long time ago with 500s and they did what was called a big bang and Yamaha went out. Yamaha didn't call it big bang, they called it cross plane. And so if you visualize the end of the crankshaft, the crank pins are shared on a road bike engine, 180 degrees up and down. So the cylinders move up and down in pairs, but they fire alternately. So that gives you an even firing order. What they did was they placed two of them at 90 degrees. So now you've got them in a cross, yeah? You've got them in that 90 degree configuration around the clock, zero, three o'clock, six o'clock, nine o'clock. That's how you've got them. And then what they did was fired them closer together so that you hit that tire with a bigger bang but then you give it a lot of time to recover. So it, somehow, no, no engineer can prove what exactly it is. Somehow the tire can handle that. So you can give it more power, but you hit it harder, but then it has time to recover. So somewhere along the way, Yamaha realized that if we go cross-plane, we can then actually give our rider this drivability they're looking for. And they actually, they called it something different. They, they called it like smoothing out the power curve. So their, their, their idea is to just make it easier for the rider to open the throttle to use what he's got. They also reverse the crank. Yeah. Try not to spend eight minutes to explain <laughs> that. <laughs> Tough one, right, Toby? Well, yeah. Yamaha's had always been reverse crank. Two-stroke days and four-stroke days. It's really simple. So you've got gyros. If you spin a bicycle in your hand or if you've got a spinning top and you spin it on the table, the faster you spin it, the longer it'll spin for, right? So the gyro, you got the front wheel, the rear wheel, and the crankshaft are the three big ones, right? If the crankshaft is spinning in the opposite direction, which it is to the tires on a Yamaha, it has the effect of counteracting the spin of the tires. It makes the bike a little bit less stable, but that's what you want in a motorcycle. You want a motorcycle that is a little bit less stable. You want to be able to turn it into a corner. So let's say you're doing 300K down the straight, you hit the brakes and you want to turn on a fast corner, a 
motorcycle that has the crankshaft spinning forward will be harder to turn because all of the inertia is resisting the turn, whereas the crankshaft spinning backwards is counteracting it. So the easy way to do this is if you have a motorcycle at home and you've got a, a stand, put your bike on the stand and rev it. And if you rev it, all production bikes spin in the direction that lifts the front tire off the ground. Most of them don't press the front tire into the ground. So if you have a crankshaft spinning forward, you open the throttle. So forward the same direction as the tires like the Honda did. You open the throttle, it pushes the front tire in the ground. The Yamaha, it takes load off the front. So it's it's a tool in the geometry game. So what you need to do then is understand, are, we, we have this thing that we want to spin the crank backwards for our design concept at Yamaha. Thereby, their resu the result is that their geometry will be different. Engine position, crankshaft position, output shaft position, swing arm angle, all that stuff to make your motorcycle turn will also, it'll be part of that package. So copying a Yamaha, if your crankshaft spins forward from a geometry point of view, won't help you because it'll probably be the wrong position to be in. Get it? Yeah. If you didn't, yeah. <laughs> sorry. It's um, not easy. It's not but easy, but you, I can see your point. Yeah. It's not it's, easy it's to not describe, easy. but if you hold the wheel... Hold the bicycle wheel in your hands, have someone spin it, have someone spin it forward, try and turn it to the right or left, have someone spin it backward and try and turn it to the right or left, you'll feel a difference. It's it's mm. a difference. And then you have it's to understand. It, well, it's physics. Yeah. Yeah, it is basic physics. And, you know, when a motorcycle is leaned on its side, everything is a spinning top. So imagine a spinning top on your on your desk. Yeah. Imagine the bike at 58 degrees, 60 degrees bank angle. All of those spinning tops are spinning. So the crankshaft is spinning in the opposite to the tire. So when you want to pick the bike up and change direction, for example, Yamahas were unbeatable at Bruno, right? They it were. used to be a Yamaha racetrack. Why, Toby? Yeah, because yeah, the yeah. chicanes are far enough apart that you're carrying high speed. So when you want the bike to change direction, Hondas couldn't change direction like that. They came off mm. corners like missiles, but Yamahas were, they'd open the throttle. And when they opened the throttle, the motorcycle naturally changed direction. On the racetrack, there was drama at Mugello in 2004 because there was a little bit of a rain shower down at the first corner, um, a bit into the race, and they stopped the race because whenever it rained, they stopped the race. And by the time the race got going again, <laughs> the rain shower had stopped and the track was only a little bit wet but 90% of the rest of the track was still dry. It was a six-lap dash for the cash, if I remember well, but it, it was a mess. Yeah. Uh, there were TV stations that said, oh, well, that's the result. Well, why aren't they going to the podium? We, we were like, well, come on, let's get the race going for part two, but it was only a six-lap dash for the cash, and all that part one was, was, was making grid positions for race two. It kind of showed the ridiculousness of stopping races. So it was the beginning of the end of fresh races, aggregate races, whatever you want to call them, that was then to, to surface itself in 06 with the first non-stop race. In 04, we also had the first visit to the Middle East in Qatar, uh, it was a proper hot day, that was. Uh, yeah. One of the photographers, he had a black hat from Speed Vision, the American TV channel, and it got UV scorched from black to grey in four days. It was that hot. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. sheer heat of a daytime race, was that a problem for you guys first time? Oh, dude, that was vicious. So what should we talk about first? So first of all, Qatar, Middle East, 
It was middle of summer, remember? And it was daytime. Whoops. It was meant to be a night race, Toby. Remember? And I don't think the lights were ready. So we ended up having to do a day race and it was brutal. So the tire warmers are at set to 80 degrees in a hot racetrack in the back of the garages. We had those little tents at the back of the pit lane. Remember that? They weren't even like structures. They were tents. I remember we put all the tires in them and they were ready to go. Before we switched everything on, they were already at 60 degrees Celsius. And the riders were getting burnt sitting on the grid. It was so hot. It was one of the worst weekends ever from management of of conditions for a rider. It was so bad. I, I, I remember a lot of riders were using the hydration packs and nobody ever used the hydration pack. It was so bad, right? So hot. And so, yeah, there was a bit of a, um, yeah, that should have been a night race. Whoops. Okay. Next one was, wasn't Shit. it? But um, yeah, it was vicious. And I just, you couldn't make anything last. And Michelin and they were just going, pulling their hair out thinking, well, we're going to have to do a really super hard tire for this because the temperature is so high. Yeah, that, that was um, that was a hard weekend. Talking about tyres, Bridgestone were continuing to up their pace in MotoGP with the tyre war against Michelin, with Dunlop there as well. And in 04, Bridgestone took two victories for Makoto Tamada, who was on the, the Camel Honda. Good-looking bike, uh, even though it was a Camel Honda Pons run team. Max Biaggi on the other side of the garage was with Michelin's, but they took two victories, Rio and Mategi, and four pole positions as well. Suzuki and Kawasaki were on Bridgestone. Dunlop were with Yamaha with Tech Three. They were getting there towards the end of the season. Yeah, they were, and it was it was like tire war was in full swing, but it wasn't the the height of the tire war, right? It was coming. You could see what was going to happen. But Bridgestone, they were making very good inroads. Um, Honda had interest, being Japanese. I mean, obviously they had contracts with Michelin in many years of winning world championships on Michelin. So, for sure, they they were like, okay, let's get. We need to have one Honda on on Bridgestones to see what they can do. And Tomata was riding the wheels off the thing. It was uh, it was interesting. Dunlops were super strong, I, I remember, with the Yamaha and Tech 3. They, they were doing some great work as well. It was interesting tyre stuff. But 2004 was really the year that MotoGP really landed because people were winning on not a Honda V5. It was the fairy tale of Valentino on a Yamaha straight out of the box, the celebrations, the, the, the sweeping, the all the celebrations that he did were just were just something um also all six honda riders still had the speed because they all had podiums that again proved what you said earlier Tom, yeah. about the flexibility of the honda v5 Gibbonau, edwards barros biaggi nicky hayden tamada that i just mentioned they were all just there just winning yeah and look at nicky nicky was um, he'd never ridden a two-stroke he was a superbike rider, right? So that was the thing that was really good. And also, like, you know, you had these systems that everybody was trying to learn how to use. So you, you needed to limit power, but limit it in the right way. And that's where drive-by-wire started to happen more. And Honda did it also, like, also so did Yamaha. They limited, the rider would control half the engine and the ECU would control the other half. I think it was a great, great way for the championship to be led because basically they were limiting anything. 
So the rules were wide open. You could go full drive by wire if you wanted to. But the manufacturers were like, well, let's let's control half the engine and let the rider do the rest. I think they should still they should really consider that for the future. Because back then they were limiting the the engine control strategies. They were trying to stop this engine locking up when they closed the throttle, right? So clutches were a big problem in the beginning, Toby. The clutches would first slipper clutches were first introduced into MotoGP. So you had that. You know, trying and now I mean slipper clutches are in all road bikes now, right? Like top end stuff. So everybody's got a slipper clutch. They, most people know what they do. You you know, you close the throttle with two higher revs and it tries to lock the back tire up. So now you've got this thing that's on a ramp that's disengaging the engine, allowing the engine the clutch to slip. So then you had butterfly control. We the, used to call it the kicker system, where you'd open one butterfly in the beginning of four on a Yamaha, for example. Uh, or two or four, and then you you would open that during the engine braking phase to smooth out so the clutch didn't slip. So you want to keep, and it's all about keeping the tire in that grip point. Yeah, you want to keep it, you don't want it to slide too much because then you got to slow down too much. So this was the beginning of understanding how do we get the maximum out of these engines. Other points of note towards the end of the season, uh, it was the last year of 24 litres in the tank, so there was going to be 22 litres the year after in 05 and 06, so Honda even ran a bike at Mategi with Toru Kawa as a wild card. Ducati over the, uh, the 2004 season, their second year were ironically nowhere. Uh, they only had two podiums and they were right at the end of the year. They blamed not doing back-to-back -back tests with the previous year's bike and kind of continuing the thread through. Aprilia, they ran out of money. They got sold to Piaggio, Kawasaki, but they, they were still there and they sounded great without the big bang firing order. But down in your garage... Tom, at Team Roberts, you had a beautiful piece of engineering with the, the Proton V5. John Barnard had come across from Formula One, from McLaren, Ferrari, his skill to to, to, to bring Formula One engineering into, into two wheels. It was a work of art. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it. John Barnard brought a standard that needed to be met, and he was in charge of the design and there was many more designers hired and um, you had engine designers coming from Formula One, some chassis designers and the quality of the workmanship skyrocketed. There was no, he didn't, he wouldn't accept that something didn't fit and he didn't want us grinding stuff at the racetrack. He'd been to races and seen and he thought, well, that's not how you go racing. And, and I think he did bring, yeah, he brought a professionalism that that was um you know, high standard, we need to do it this way and do it right. Unfortunately, you know, budgets are budgets and you still have to get results. And motorcycle world is different to car world. So some of the ideas made what happened after John Barnard, it made the bike a lot better. And um, making the bike actually work properly um, was the hard part that he never never got a chance to really shine at because he wasn't there for long enough, right? And, and a lot of that was budget, so. But it was simple thinking. All the best ideas are simple, aren't they, Tom? You know, yeah. running the oil through the chassis, running the cooling through the chassis, just using up space that was otherwise free and available. Yeah, I mean, I think then maybe trying to go for under the weight limit was maybe a mistake because there was no real advantage to be under the weight limit because then you'd have to put extra weight on the bike somewhere. So sometimes 
some of the parts were maybe a little bit too fragile when they didn't need to be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and and the thing is, like, the number one thing for MotoGP and is the engine is the most important part of the package after the rider. But you need both of them, and both of them matter the most. So those are the two things that mattered. If you had the rider had the throttle connection and the correct power delivery and the bike didn't break then you could go testing and, and then you could keep your tire manufacturer happy by testing that then trickled down into results and unfortunately we didn't have that no for we we had a lot of unreliability that was a shame that was a shame it was a beautiful beautiful thing to look at uh, ultimately the championship ended up with valentino winning ahead of Sete Gibernau and then max biaggi before we went to 2005 Big changes for 2005 in MotoGP. They lost a couple of litres on the regulations for the fuel tank. It was 22 litres. That was a big change. Only two litres? Really? Was that the Mm. difference? Slowing them down. So now we'll get to the point where these bikes are getting so fast. How do we slow these bikes down without limiting the manufacturers? This was always a discussion in the MSMA meetings, right? Everybody was looking at it going, we need to, we don't want the bikes to be too dangerous. And the higher the, the higher the speed, the more dangerous they become, right? So if you take two liters out of the race tank, you're going to slow them down because you, or you have to find new ways to keep that, yeah, to make that power, which then pushes the technology. And the manufacturers wanted that challenge also because we need to, we need to consistently be looking for some way of improving our performance. And then that improves their production stuff. And in the end, it trickles down to Joe Public. So, you know, that was a, maybe people don't understand how big a challenge that was back then because a lot of stuff was, we're still pre-pneumatic on a lot of stuff here, right? So you're pushing spring valve engines, which is a basic production engine. It becomes difficult to finish the race. And Seth Lee Jimberdu ran out of fuel. I believe, he did, didn't he? he did. Remember? Fighting for this championship. And, and there you go, a Honda ran out of fuel. Things that never happened. And they were good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, somebody says that maybe they didn't put enough fuel in the tank, which is like, are you serious? I mean, you wouldn't take the risk. I just remember us thinking, you, and don't forget, you weren't allowed to freeze fuel anymore, Toby. Remember those days? Oh, yeah. To, you, you, you used oh, to put fuel Lord. tanks in a freezer at the back of the garage. Charlie Moody had it. It wasn't banned. Yeah, it wasn't banned until a, until a point. Uh, at, this time, at this time, I think it became banned. So, yeah, if you put fuel... In a freezer and freeze it, you can turn 26 liters into 24 liters or 24 liters into 22. And you squeeze it into that tank, screw it tight and send it to the grid. And you used to hear the thing pinging on the grid. Ping, 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 ping. It was terrifying. I thought, and then, oh my God, what's going to happen? But the thing is, as the fuel warms up, it expands. And then when you finish the race, it didn't you matter. Had, because you had air if they did the breather. Fuel, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, that that was the thing back then. You know, you're always trying to get the maximum mm, out of it. Mm. Uh, Ducati messed around with a semi-auto gearbox. That soon got scrapped. Even Loris Caparossi, the bravest yeah. man on the grid, said, no, uh, no. no. Uh, <laughs> know, at Jerez, there was the big battle between Valentino Rossi and Sete Gibernau into the final corner because at Qatar the year before... Uh, separate podcast just for one race let's not go too deep into it now but valentino and sete they had a big falling out over grid position and cleaning of grid position they got sent to the back of the grid did valentino and max biaggi jibana won the race uh 
Valentino had to fight back through the order from the back of the grid and ultimately then crashed and didn't score. He yeah. was so angry on Italian TV, he said, Sete Gibbonau will never win another Grand Prix. And at the Ooh. time, I said, wouldn't have said that if I were you. He was right. Guess what? He was right. He was right. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Not only could he ride a motorcycle like a god, he could see into the future. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> and there was the, the last corner kerfuffle. Oh, dear. Oh, what a mess. As I say, it's another phone. It's another uh, another podcast. Yeah, um, yeah. We went to China for the first time. We went to Istanbul for the first time. Oh, yeah. What were those new circuits like to set up a 235 horsepower beast to a circuit you've never been to before? Yeah, they were always challenging. I, I think Istanbul for me, Toby, was one of the my favorite racetracks just it was such an awesome racetrack the the layout of this track the way it worked long and technical it was super cool and when you go to a, a new racetrack it's always difficult right you get some pdf files so you get some information beforehand and then you try and do some gear calculations and Fridays were busy and Saturdays, you know, you had six gears, right? You had first to six, but you had multiple. Back then, there was no limitation. You could have as many gears as you wanted for first to six. You have as many primary drives. This is before they put big limits on. So you had every gear option available to you and you'd be changing the gearbox every five minutes, even with 990s, right? Like riders were so, they wanted something so definite that you had no option but to do it. So yeah, it was um, hard work. China was a good one also. It was an interesting racetrack, cool layout. Yeah, it's kind of sometimes that's missing now, isn't it? Some of these really different racetracks, right? But we return to Laguna Seca, first time back since 1994. Nicky Hayden won the race. Uh, people forget he was less than two seconds ahead of Colin Edwards. Um, yeah. Ultimately, though, what MotoGP did was bring in a new class of rider that had never ridden a two-stroke. Yeah. And they were used to AMA Superbike for Nicky, World Superbike for Colin Edwards. And all of a sudden, they were instantly, not all of a sudden, but they were instantly uh, competitive. And that just put more mix into the That's mix. right. Simple as that. Yeah, and it was nice to see new people win, right? And also, it must have been... It must have been a great feeling for someone like Nikki to win at home, right? And Laguna, he would have raced around Laguna so many times. And th there are certain racetracks on the calendar, Toby. We've walked many of them, come across each other, walking them, you know. You would walk the racetrack on a Thursday always. I did. I loved it because you would walk around looking at, we were here last year, like, look at that crack. Was that here? And like, you'd, you know, bring that to the garage and talk to riders about it and stuff. And I remember walking around Laguna for the first time for me. And I remember thinking... I always wanted to walk down the corkscrew. I always thought I always wanted to ride there. And when you were there thinking, this is amazing. And then all of a sudden you saw a guy like Nicky win a race at his home race. I think for guys like Valentino, it should have been, it would have been a good lesson, right? Certainly was, certainly was. At Team Roberts, uh, KTM stepped into the, uh, into the middle of the bike with their V4 four. engine. Yeah, yeah V4 four. engine. But, it went wrong. It went wrong. Yeah. We don't need to go into depth, but it was no. a sad end. Yeah, like, I mean, the Kenny Roberts full project, right? We struggled with the engine stuff on the four-stroke, and then KTM stepped in. We did a, a year with them. We only did up to Bruno of year of 2005. I really liked the Austrian guys. We 
we really got along on the engineering side. That wasn't the problem. And of course they pulled out, but what can you do? So it was, it was another good experience because you learn a new strategy, a new system, a new engine from an engineering point of view. It was always, you're always learning. So cool, you know, and then you just move forward and yeah, what happened after that was also awesome. It certainly was. And let's just step straight into that, shall we? So you went into 06 at Team Robertson. I'm tingling. Can you imagine the phone call with Kenny and and, and HRC? We give you Honda V5 engine. Yeah, yeah. The the unobtainable thing. Yeah, yeah. And you were going to run it. Well, I mean, full credit to the Honda guys, right? So Kenny beat Honda with Yamaha. And nobody could ride a Yamaha that Kenny Road, right? Remember those days, Toby? Well, that was kind of before our time, but I just remember mm-hmm. when I started working for Kenny, I wanted to know more about Kenny. So I went back and watched all that and read as much as I could about it and all the rest of it. So they had a respect for him that they didn't really have for many other people. So when he went looking in 05, thinking, okay, I, I want to I want to give another go at this. Like, I know we can make a better chassis than a lot of people. Where am I going to get an engine from? There was discussions. I don't know the complete ins and outs being in the background. Then I remember um, being told we're going to use a Honda V5 next year. Um, you guys, there's a couple of guys got to go to Japan. <laughs> I remember thinking, okay, can I be on that journey? Um, yeah, that was cool. And like, they had this respect for him because he he beat them. And they just thought, okay, let's give him an engine. And they don't forget that. Remember that Morawaki, Toby, that showed up? So Honda was prepared to let people use this technology. And in for them, it was an engineering exercise. It was like, we know our bike, our engine is really good. We know our bike is really good. What can somebody else that thinks outside the box do with our package? That was cool. So I think from that point of view, you have to give full, full credit to the K- to the Honda guys for for having the, um, I'll even just say it, the balls to go, let's give Kenny an engine because we kind of like what they're doing over there. And we entered an engineering partnership that was like we shared some information. So we learned from them, they learned from us. And, and yeah, 2006, what a flipping year, you know? <laughs> I was thrown in at the deep end the year before to be crew chief for for Shaky Burn with the KTM engine. And then I was lucky enough to stay as Kenny Jr.'s crew chief for 06. Warren Willing was hired um, to be a consultant who had been Kenny's crew chief at Suzuki when he won the championship and worked for Kenny Sr. back in the day 500 days when they were dominating. And I was so lucky because Chuck said, okay, Warren, you can come, no problem, but Tom's the crew chief. So if he has a question, you have to explain why. And so it was super cool. I got to learn everything. and amazing cool did you go to japan pre-season did you get on yeah track? oh yeah. you went to hrc you saw yeah, it all twice so saw it all good point no so you know you get locked in a room toby like we can't let these people see everything so but we we had to take our bike there pre-season because they were afraid that we were going to blow the engine up and that couldn't happen so because kate Kenny um, made his own chassis, his own airboxes, swing arms, all the rest of it. We had to take our bike there to run on their rolling road. So we had to prepare that and then they had to map it. That was, I never got to see the mapping. I never got to see it done, but we had a special set of exhaust pipes made with Lambda sensors. And then they plugged all that stuff in, took it. They, we were there, there was three of us there. Um, myself, electronics guy and an engine builder. and. When they took the bike away, we just had to sit in this room and wait. And then eight hours later, 
eight hours later, it came back. What they didn't realize was we turned our 2D data logger on to see what they were doing. (laughs) 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 So we got all this information out of like, look what they're doing. But Toby, then we showed up at the first test. They took the exhaust pipes back and said, right, put these standard exhaust pipes back on. They didn't run any sensors, no lambda, like all this fueling stuff we'd been trying to learn how to do. Maybe I should have a quick discussion about that. Like they took all this stuff off and said, all you need is water temperature and oil temperature and fuel pressure, nothing else. We're, no. We were like, no, seriously. We did all of 06 with water temperature, oil temperature and pressure, and fuel pressure. Nothing no else. No lambda sensor. You didn't need any of that rubbish. The <sighs> thing was phenomenal unbelievable and like kenny jr wrote it and all he did for three tests was spin like go riding around the racetrack doing burnouts it's like hey we need to get down to business here because racing's coming but and back then we were doing loads of testing right so because you could you could there was no limit and it was just like wow what what is going on like you couldn't believe they could make something that was that bulletproof and it's because all the hard work was done on the dyno so it was just phenomenal. They were using mass flow in the air intake. That was what was the key. That's what we didn't see because we didn't have we didn't have that information, but we saw that afterwards using Honda ECU. So they were doing very clever mapping with a very good base map and then measuring the flow of the air in the intakes. So it was at the front end, not the back end, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. Right. And the thing is, that thing was a missile, mate. And it was always ran perfect. It always started first time, never had an oil leak, never had a water leak. I'll never forget this. This is one of the best stories ever. Kajira Koinuma was our rep. Yeah, so he was our Honda representative. We were in Japan and they had the bike in the, they had the bike in the, bike build area where all the other teams were building their satellite bikes, right? And the Repsol guys had been there. They had already built their factory bikes. They were gone. So satellite teams go to a different time. And Mr. Koinuma was standing at the bottom of our bike pointing at a bracket. He says, hey, Tom, HRC don't like this bracket. And I looked at him. He looked at me. I looked at Brian, our data guy, and I said, but Brian, that's their bracket, isn't it? Like we used their bracket. We used their radiator and their bracketry because we didn't want to have any doubt. Like we didn't want to blow it up because our radiators were wrong, right? So... We said, I said to Konyuma, that's yours. And he broke into song. You say yes, I say no. Because <laughs> he was a musician, right? He used to play guitar and play like for people in the pit lane. He was an amazing, he was so funny. And he realized that I was right. Like it was their part that they were complaining about. That was one of the funniest moments. I, I'll never forget that as long as I live. Yeah, it was cool. Was there a great big conveyor belt of qualifying engines? Because there was no restriction on how many engines you could use. So... Were you throwing them in and out every Saturday night? No, you didn't have to. Because they were that flipping reliable. It was that good. I remember it was 700 kilometers between head services and 1,400 kilometers between complete overhauls. So, Kenny, we were a one-rider team. We had five engines, I think it was, five engines or six, I can't remember now. And every one of those engines had that cycle. And they did 10,000K in a year each, basically, something like that. So that's that's less than the engines they use at the moment for less races. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But oh, the, like this is pre-pneumatic, right? So like there, and you know what was phenomenal? So we got to build our own engines, and we did head services in the back of the truck, which was unheard of, right? Like you took in a Honda engine oh, apart you're in the lucky. back of your truck. You're lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, I remember our engine builder coming back and going, like when you pick a primary gear, there's a there's a room full of them, fifty five. 
I go get a 55. And the, it wasn't that they machined different productions. They, they didn't machine perfect tolerance. What they did was get a production batch together, measure them and go, right, these are all the ones that are 0 0.12 thick. These are 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5, whatever the number is. Go in that shelf and find the run that fits. So all you did was cherry pick the perfect part that fit what you built. That's how they did their bulletproofing. Unbelievable, Toby. Simple. It was it was simple and it was clever. And I remember we were building in years later. For, okay, it's let's fast forward 2010 just for one second. We're doing a chassis build in Honda and I was in Honda again. And this, they did the same thing in the linkage for the, for the pin that goes through the linkage that the bolt bolts through for the roller bearing. So they just had the middle one and then three three smaller on one direction and three thicker in the other direction and you pick the one that fit your linkage and that's how they did their production tolerances so all you did was get your micrometer and then walk across to the shelf yeah pick the right one and make it fit and you did that for every part that's why it took so long to build one but once it was built bulletproof tolerances awesome. were fantastic yeah unbelievable yeah. 2006 was an eye-opener to how you could make something work and, and I remember the first time we started that thing in Banbury, Kenny came over and we hadn't seen Kenny in Banbury in a winter time for a long time. He came over and he wanted to be the first one to rev it. And just a smile on his face. It was just, it was funny. Like, yeah, you could see he was thinking, okay, now we got a chance. We, we need to do something with this. And yeah, like for me, it was a crowning moment in MotoGP, you know, sixth in the world championship against the factories. We beat Kawasaki with a one rider team. From a, mm. Yeah, and um, basically, Kenny Jr. should have won Estoril, but didn't. But, you know, I did my job. He he led it. Yeah. He just missed that lap. Whoops. One more to go. Yeah. We had a good party and we didn't go to bed. Exactly. Super uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Australia, a couple of races earlier, oh. it was the first nonstop race. We mentioned it earlier in the pod, the, this whole ridiculous analog thing yeah. of stopping races because it was raining. Yeah. Uh, I'll steal Julian's line, who went up and down pit lane to to get together the uh, opinions of all the team bosses about these nonstop races. And I think it was Lewis Dantine. You remember? Yeah, that? yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, quite. And he said, it is the least worst option. <laughs> and I've always remembered that expression to this yeah. day. So basically in Australia, it was the first nonstop race. It started yeah whatever dry it then went to wet people came in yeah and they changed motorcycles and you had to leave on a motorcycle with different tires to that which you arrived on yeah that, it, and that kind of rule sticks to this day it does um there's a video of one of Nicky Hayden's mechanics pushing Nicky away from in front of the Repsol Honda area. I saw it again briefly, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. I don't know where I saw it, Twitter or something or other. And Yamo, who's the Finnish mechanic, went, no! Yeah. Because somebody else pulled out, yeah, yeah. nearly knocking Nicky off. Yeah. It was Wild West. It was kind of, it's sarcastic that, here we are, like we have to keep these races going for TV reasons, and I don't have a problem with that. But here we are at the most dangerous circuit, and I don't want to put Phillip Island down. Phillip Island is my favorite circuit. I love Phillip Island. If you ever want to go to a Grand Prix, folks, go to that one. But for a flag to flag in the narrow pit lane with no room, and that was the first one we ever did. Yeah, I've never been more scared in my life as a guy not riding a motorcycle. 
I remember standing there watching it happen and we were thinking, is he coming in this lap? Like we're, cause the, it started to rain about six laps in or, or something like that. Remember Toby? And like you were, you weren't sure if your rider was coming in. So all of a sudden you hear this, brrr, all these bikes have started and they're running in the background and then you're warming the thing up and you've got wets and you're ready for your rider. And all of a sudden there's 24 guys coming down pit lane at the same moment and anything can happen. And it did. And we were lucky nobody got hurt that day and I've never been so scared. It was just on, it was, mm. it was something to witness. And I, I remember thinking to myself, well, that was good. At least we got away with it. Nobody got hurt. Like every other racetrack will be easier because we've got more room. Mm. Yeah. It, it's a necessary evil and it was the least worth yeah. option. <clears throat> Dan team was Definitely. right. Um, yeah. and, 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 and ultimately, you know, TV does bring in the sponsors and the sponsors pay for the teams and without the teams, oh dear, no racing. So exactly. TV is ultimately king. But what a shot. Melandri won that race from Chris Vermeulen from Valentino Rossi. Uh, Melandri came out the last corner on a Fortuna Honda V5, right hand on the throttle, smoke pouring off the rear, left hand off the bar, V for victory. Coolest <laughs> shot ever. Yeah. He just Coolest needed like shot. A he needed a cigarette in the other hand, didn't he? <laughs> would have been even funny. Yeah, like it was cool, wasn't it? I mean, it, and you, the pit lane was like where you're standing. You're standing at the exit of that last corner. It's one of those great corners around the world, isn't it? And on a MotoGP bike, wow. Just to finish off, technically, we also had the tyre war continuing at the highest level. Yeah. Michelin making tyres overnight to spec yeah. for each rider for the weather conditions come Sunday, after Friday data, after Saturday data. Yeah, I know. They were brilliant. Unbelievable. So they'd show up on a Thursday and go, right, this is the tyre plan. We've checked the weather forecast for the next three days and you guys need to test these tyres. So they're, we're checking left edge grip, left drive grip, whatever. Every, every Michelin rider had a job to do. So that on Saturday night, when the tire arrived at the racetrack, you had Sunday morning, you had the perfect race tire. As long as the weather conditions didn't change, and this was achievable in Europe, it wasn't really achievable on flyaways because they could make the stuff in Europe and get it there on time. Yeah, I, I just remember being part of that and looking. I remember when they brought a tire into the garage and you saw the five stripes. You know, you've got your left edge, your right edge got your left drive area and you got your right drive area and then you got down the middle for that high speed down the straight and i there wasn't a tire that came apart in 2006 i mean how is that possible like they, we never had a tire that wasn't the perfect tire on sunday and i even remember on qual those were the days where you could put qualifiers in toby right so not only were they making tires overnight for grand prix they were coming with qualifiers and michelin because Bridgestone had such good front tire and Dunlop had an amazing front tire. Michelin came with a front qualifier because when you put a super sticky rear qualifier in a bike and you try and turn that motorcycle around the corner, well, all you did was plow the front into the ground and, and the bike wouldn't go around the corner. It was fine when you touched the throttle and, and you know, picked the front up, but you needed to grip it on the front as well. And those front qualifiers wouldn't go straight down the straight because <laughs> they were only designed to go around corners. So that was terrifying. Imagine being a rider. Like there was certain guys that could get the maximum out of that. And there was other people that just hated them. Like guys needed, some riders needed five laps to get going. And other riders like could just go on the first lap. Amazing. It was a five-year run 
of something unbelievable. It really yeah. was a space race, a Saturn V rocket at every weekend. Uh, new manufacturers, new sponsors, a lot of money washing around the paddock. Uh, yeah. The rise and continuing rise of Valentino Rossi, the battle with Jibber now. Alex Barros, didn't mention him, jumped on a yeah. Honda V5 at Mategi on a Friday morning and he won on Sunday afternoon. That's how easy they were to ride. Um, it was just fantastic stuff. And uh, for me, it was my favourite era. The next race is always the best race. That's true. Even in 2022 into 2023, I, I'm as excited now when they're on the grid and they're on the warming up lap. And as for when they let the clutch in and they go down to the first corner, you know what it's like when you were stood mm. next to me in the commentary box. Yeah, it was yeah. as if Amazing. we were all racing with them. And yet That's we true. were in the box. It, it's great stuff, MotoGP, but... What an era. Fantastic. Amazing. It was cool. And the good thing about it was at the end of the era, when 990 stopped, we still had almost everybody there on different configurations. How cool is that? Yeah. And guys winning on different motorcycles. I mean, that was how good can you couldn't get it better. Great formula. Dorna had achieved and continued to grow their dream of making this new formula, and it continues to this day over two decades later. Tom, we could continue to talk about 990s. Maybe we will another day. But uh, thank you. Uh, we were at, I was at every race but one. Every race but wow. one, but you say you were at every race. So, yeah, between us, we uh, we pretty well covered it, but great days. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Toby. Tom Jojic, ladies and gentlemen, uh, giving us an insight from what it was like inside a garage during the MotoGP era. Here with the Race MotoGP podcast. We will continue to have more podcasts with Tom. Keep in touch wherever you download your podcasts from. From Tom Jojic and myself, Toby Moody, goodbye for now. The Athletic.